0: Why do Canadians refuse to acknowledge the residential schools as a genocide? Does the genocide of Indigenous people continue even with the closure of the last residential school? Has reporting on the mass grave on the grounds of a former residential school finally shed light on a dark tragedy of our history or drive the truth even further underground? was there indeed a driving fictional narrative that enabled the presence of residential schools to exterminate indigenous peoples as a good thing. Today on a special episode of the Global Research News Hour, as increasing numbers of Canadians wake up to the reality of the horrors that took place in the residential school system, we hear from multiple perspectives about what it all means for the survivors. In our first half hour, we hear from Professor Nigan Sinclair about why Canadians are refusing to associate residential schools with a genocide. Then we hear from Professor David MacDonald about the origins of residential schools and what continues the tendency toward violence today. We'll hear from former Anglican minister Kevin Annett about his own endeavors to correct the record. Finally, researcher Richard Sanders shares the secret about fictive Canada and the role that played in doing nothing in the face of the atrocities against Indigenous people. On this week's program, Still Unreconciled in Canada, a century of residential school horrors. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of June 18, 2021. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, when occupied in Key, the homeland of the Metis Historical Territory of the Nahiwak and the Dakota. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States, and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. The Perception of Strength from the perspective of the Biden administration, is more important than reality because the long-term focus of NATO cannot be on Russia if it ever hopes to muster the political and economic resources necessary to confront China. Joe Biden simply needs to take this perception of NATO unity and strength with him to Geneva where he will use it as a prop in the political theater that will transpire when he sits down with Russian President Vladimir Putin on June 16th. In Geneva, Joe Biden will not try to reset relations with Russia or repair relations with Putin. There will be no detente. Instead, the goal is to prevent the continued worsening of relations between the two nations to create a sense of stability and predictability that will maintain the present chill in relations without continuing a deep freeze, or worse, a hot war. That comes from the article, Biden wants NATO to project the strength it doesn't have, by Scott Ritter, posted June 16th, originally published on RT Op-Ed. This is Peru, but to be sure... Election fraud happens even in the most sophisticated countries, including in Peru's North American neighbor, who pretends to run the world. However, should this turnaround happen, Keiko Fujimori and her capitalist supporters are working so hard to achieve, the country risks a civil war. Because this is the moment for the vast majority of Peruvians that they have been waiting for— those Peruvians that have always been considered as non-people by the oligarchy. They should now finally get their justice, get their piece of the very rich pie that is Peru. After 200 years of an oligarchy-ruled nation, this mostly silent majority truly deserves a break. That comes from the article, Peru at the Brink of Civil War, The Uprising of the Dispossessed, by Peter Koenig. Posted June 16. Consider this. On this day in 1948, future Israeli Prime Minister Sherat exalted to World Zionist Organization head Goldman on Israel's successful ethnic cleansing. The most spectacular event in the contemporary history of Palestine is the wholesale evacuation of its Arab population. The opportunities opened up by the present reality for a lasting and radical solution of the most vexing problem of the Jewish state are so far-reaching as to take one's breath away. The reversion to the status quo ante is unthinkable, i.e., the refugees would not be allowed to return. What we are seeing here is the rise of a nakedly genocidal regime in Israel, one that is identical and faithful to its fundamental Zionist roots. That comes from the article Dancing with the Israeli Flag in Jerusalem, What It Means and Why Palestinians' Rage, by Rima Najjar, posted June 16th. Dr. Montagnier says that an enormous mistake, an unacceptable mistake, a scientific mistake, and medical error has been made. The COVID vaccines are causing new variants that perpetuate the problem. Dr. Montagnier said that epidemiologists know but are silent about the phenomenon known as antibody-dependent enhancement, or ADE. Professor Montagnier explained that the trend is happening in each country where, quote, the curve of vaccination is followed by the curve of deaths, unquote. Montagnier's point is supported by information in an open letter from a long list of medical doctors to the European Medicines Agency. That comes from the article, Is the COVID Vaccine Causing the COVID variants?" by Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, posted June 16th, originally published on the author's blog site, PCR Institute for Political Economy. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Since the end of May, Canadians have been reeling by the confirmed discovery of a mass grave built on the former grounds of the Indian Residential School in Kamloops, British Columbia. 215 small bodies were stored in the area and believed to be the bodies of former students. This discovery not only confirms the stories told by Indigenous people remembering their own experiences, but it raises concerns about still more of these burials at residential school sites across Canada. Still more searches are planned. The schools were run by Catholic, United Church, Presbyterian, and other churches in the religious faith of Christianity. But it raises the question of our own responsibilities as settlers decades later. Residential schools were quite different from ordinary schools. They presumed to replace rivals in the native community, defending the land and water by removing their indigenous identity. In addition, with the high body counts and tales of physical and sexual abuse, the question arises as to whether or not this was an instrument of genocide. To discuss this, I turn to Nigan Sinclair. He himself is Anishinaabe and an associate professor in Native Studies at the University of Manitoba. He's a regular commentator on Indigenous issues and a regular columnist for the Winnipeg Free Press, where he recently wrote the article, Time to Stop the Excuses it was genocide. I asked him about the reluctance to refer to the massive killing as a genocide.
1: The place of debate around residential schools as an act of genocide has to do with the word intent. Uh, Not so much the provable elements of the, you know, there's five different ways that genocide. I mean, but, you know, the fifth is the forcible transfer of children from one group to another. So, I mean you know that 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 is almost exactly a description of residential schools so so if we're talking about uh the physical act then the physical act is certainly evident and so in order to prove intent you have to prove two things you have to prove that there is a mental intent and then a physical intent the physical intent is undeniable so you don't really have to debate that issue there was a forcible transfer of children from one group to another period Uh, But the problem has always been because of the issues around mental intent or the debate around mental intent. Uh, So what Canadian politicians and people from the church and others, advocates, there are some scholars who make these arguments to say things like schools are schools and education is education. Schools are not designed to exterminate children. They're meant to build children because of the educational factors. But when it comes to residential schools, the fact is this is that the schools were designed specifically to eradicate the culture in children, which is why the TRC could only go so far as to make the argument for cultural genocide, because the federal government said that they have not recognized it as uh, having the mental intent to qualify as genocide. Therefore, they won't they won't recognize the, uh, the act as, a, as an act of genocide, uh, the residential schools as an act of genocide. The the fact is that now that these uh, unmarked grave sites, um, oftentimes mass burial spaces, are coming to light, it's very evident that two things are have are undeniable. First is that the schools were completely unsanitary and unsafe for children to enter meaning that there was an undoubtable likelihood that of death to occur, and that the federal government knew about that, which is the second element here. Uh, Dr. Peter Bryce in as early as 1906 was making claims to the federal government within their very own reports that deaths were happening within the school due to tuberculosis. And if we just take out the idea, for instance, of children who escaped and then died. Meaning that the circumstances were so terrible that children felt that they had to uh, run along train lines and try to run home. Uh, never mind the fact that there was open murder that happened in the schools as well. If we just take those out for a moment, uh, which is impossible, of course, but, but if we just take those out and we just think of the places as tuberculosis centers, and that the federal government knew that these were unsanitary. Uh, buildings, which with unsafe conditions, often starvation taking place, it would be like this. Uh, if uh, if I do nothing, like if I know that someone's going to come to your house, and uh, someone's told me, I'm going to go to this person's house, and I'm going to shoot him. And I've seen the gun. I know that this is a serious account. I see the evidence of the violence, or I know the, the violence, the history of violence of that individual. I know that it's a very real claim. Then the fact that I don't stop that person makes me culpable for murder, you know makes me uh, maybe not in terms of I didn't pull the trigger, but I didn't do anything to stop it. So it's like a it's like a moment of I have a mental intent to do nothing in order to watch that violence takes place. It's very clear and absolutely undeniable that the federal government knew what was happening in residential schools and did nothing about it. In fact, what they did is they expedited the removal of children to those places in which they would face those unsanitary and unsafe conditions, which would most often lead to their death. So it's as if the federal government pulled the trigger. So what that tells you is, as with these uh, grave sites who are being uncovered across the country, and. Uh, The TRC didn't have a mandate to do a research project on finding these grave sites, they they had uh, suspicion, because survivors told them, they also had evidence uh, by Google Earth and other images that they took place in order to, you know, it was very evident that right beside the school there was there was dug up areas and that there was um, you could see from Google Earth. I've seen the images that you could see that there's grave sites in and around the school. Um, Everybody knew, except for the federal government, refused to do those searches as early as 2015. Uh, The federal government refused and continues to refuse to process and investigate the murders and deaths of children at these schools, other than to say, well, if it's not on the records, then I guess, you know, it's debatable. And that's why we need to call residential schools for what it is, which is a genocidal act, because it's clear the physical intent, it's undeniable, the section, the fifth section of the definition of genocide is the forcible transfer of one children to another group. So there's a physical evidence there, it's undeniable, you can't debate it. Mm. In terms of the mental intent, while there have been perhaps arguments in the past that have carried water in terms of the mental intent, it is undeniable that the federal government sent children to their deaths. Which is just as bad as pulling the trigger. And and that's not an issue of uh, it's like, for instance, uh, those during uh, Rwanda, for example, who reported on their neighbors. Um, it was those who uh, who uh, in in the Holocaust uh, those who operated you know were taking orders within the army to send people to the death camps they didn't pull the trigger but they are had a participation in the mental intent of the murder of children period if uh,
0: if we if the state does finally acknowledge it Uh, I suppose there would be repercussions in the sense that uh, in order to prevent it, there has to be concrete actions that could fundamentally change our behavior. I mean, are are there activities in the dealings between industry and First Nations, uh, fundamentally at some level, that uh, are also an attack and and not a more, uh, say, a collective endeavor? I mean, what I'm trying to say is, is, is it possible to call out residential schools and not take it even further.
1: Yeah, I mean, I actually don't think there's as much repercussions as I think there is, uh, you know, on the right-hand side of the political spectrum. There's a great deal of paranoia that this is going to somehow open up lawsuits and class action suits and I think much of that has been dealt with with the trc when it comes to residential schools I think we certainly have to still deal with the issue of day schools which is still underway and and still under negotiation and and under that process Um, but the fact is that I think many survivors and their families uh, are not interested in digging up the past but what they are is interested is in a Canada that's willing to face itself in a Canada that's willing to tell the truth about who it is and you know stop this falsified, nonsensical, patriotic, patriotic, uh, uh, multicultural righteousness that it has when it comes to talking about itself. I mean, Canada has to face the reality that every aspect of this country, the economy, the, uh, the social capital, the political capital, the power that it has, uh, is built off the exploitation of indigenous lands and resources and indigenous peoples. And, you know, the residential school system was simply a, a, a tool of acquiring the land. That's what it was there for, is if you can remove the communities and then remove their willingness to live, their willingness to do things like resist, uh, then, you know, you remove the children. That's the number one way that you assault those communities. It was not about education at all. It was ultimately about taking the land So the sooner that we can connect the dot between residential school and land theft, the sooner that this country will begin to understand how that process was an interconnected one.
0: That was Anishinaabe Professor Nigan Sinclair. To explore further, I also got hold of David McDonald. He's a political science professor at the University of Guelph. He focuses on comparative indigenous politics in Canada Holocaust and Genocide Studies, and Critical Race Theory. He's also author of the book, The Sleeping Giant Awakens, Genocide, Indian Residential Schools, and the Challenge of Conciliation. I'm wondering if you could take us back to the origin of residential schools in, in terms of how, how did this specific institution make it to Canada?
2: Um, well, basically, I mean, there had been uh, residential schools in various forms since, uh, uh, since the onset of colonization, largely by, um, first of all, by French missionaries and others, uh, the sort of the first, I guess, modern residential schools were, were set up in, in Ontario, like the Shingwauk school up in, uh, what's now Sault Ste. Marie and, uh, and, uh, what became known as the, the Mohawk residential school, uh, uh, near six nations, um, in sort of the early part of the 19th century. And, uh, in some cases, the early ones were, you know, were, were seen as a, as a way of of uh, of, uh, of kind of converting indigenous children to to the the religion of the day, but also could could be seen as a way for, at least in the parents' minds, of the kids acquiring some knowledge and skills of uh, of, of European uh, forms of civilization, which could be helpful in trade and in all sorts of other things as well. So. Uh, It probably started out uh, at a pretty small scale and there would have been some positive aspects to it Uh, later on by sort of the the 1870s 1880s you have reports being written by different government officials and others recommending that uh, this can be a way of of assimilating indigenous uh, children uh, during a time when uh, when settler colonialism was was uh, was increasing when uh, they basically wanted to bring more europeans into the country they wanted to take more land uh indigenous peoples were essentially in the way so it was it was one one kind of policy that went together with the taking of lands the settlement of europeans um there were starvation policies and things out in western canada i'm from saskatchewan where uh jim daschuk's daschuk wrote a book called clearing the plains which you've probably heard of uh which uh which talks about using starvation to get indigenous peoples to go onto reserves things like that so it was it was really i guess in a kind of a, a, a coherent uh, sort of institutional form uh, really took root in the eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, and was one of many policies basically designed to alienate uh, indigenous peoples and and pave the way for for the for a European Canada.
0: Yeah, could you maybe point out some of the other things that were going on at that time that uh, tended to make this uh, residential school part of an overall path, essentially, to a, a genocide, cultural genocide? Yeah.
2: Well, what you have is, um, I mean, you've you've got different policies of starvation, so you're taking Indigenous peoples off their lands in violation of, of the treaties which had been agreed. Um, uh, rations were withheld to get Indigenous peoples either to sign treaty or, once they had signed treaty, to go on to uh, uh, small reserve lands, which were not necessarily their traditional territories. Um, you have different kinds of rules and laws being instigated to uh, prevent indigenous peoples from practicing their own ceremonies, doing their own, uh, their own the, the kinds of, of activities they've done on their own lands since time immemorial. Um, you also have essentially uh, mass efforts to convert indigenous kids into different Christian denominations. Um, uh, to and, and in any kind of schooling arrangement, generally speaking, although this was not always the case, to to get the children to give up their indigenous languages and speak either English or French. So those are just some of the things as well. It was um, there was all a whole host of different kinds of legislation uh, introduced uh, over the you know over the course of, of colonization to uh, uh, to to bring about some form of of destruction of indigenous identities.
0: Yeah. Now we we look back now and say, "Well, it's not so horrible that they would practice this genocide," you know, looking back. But at the same time, in practice, it seems as if it is still continuing. You know, I mean, you've got the '60s scoop, uh, children in yeah. care, you know, and uh, the the same residue of you know a higher percentage than normal of of people in the in the in the jail system and being penalized. Could you maybe express like how? What ways does that racism, that, that essentially uh, you know, a genocidal, continue in in spite of the closure of residential schools?
2: Yeah, well, that's a good question. I mean, part of part of the issue was that the federal government eventually did did want to get out of the residential school business. I mean, um, and uh, and so you have like the 60s scoop. You have the removal of children from their homes, which I talk about in the book as as, uh, as, as constituting elements of genocide in some ways a bit more successful in the sense that if um, if someone was what you might call white passing um, they could sometimes be put into into uh, white homes and and told they were like Greek or Italian or something like that and there are cases I discuss in the book where uh, the children not only lost their language and, and culture um, but they also lost knowledge of even being indigenous so that's and uh, and so things I think have I mean, it's so you get a continuation of stuff happening uh, after that time. Um, I mean, there's also chronic underfunding of, of uh, children's uh, indigenous kids, health care, education, other things like that. Um, so the impacts continue. I mean, it's uh, um, there's never been a like a reset period. So uh, the harms of the past have ripple effects on, on the continued harms of the present. Uh, And there hasn't been a period where the government has kind of pulled back and let indigenous peoples kind of catch up uh, and uh, and then turned up the colonial pressure again. It's uh, uh, you know, there's periods where the pressure is maybe greater or lesser in different parts of the country. But um, but the the processes that that started out with the residential schools, um, they haven't really ended. They've just changed and, and morphed into different things. If That makes sense.
0: Yeah. Now, this, uh, the understanding of the genocide of a people, I mean, Parliament so far is not willing to recognize it as such. How will the recognition of genocide possibly lead to improvement in our relations?
2: Well, I think, um, I think genocide recognizes that groups, self-determined groups uh, of people Indigenous peoples who had their own governments, their own uh, diplomatic protocols, their own trade routes, uh, their own laws, um, their own close ties to territory, uh, their own ways of, um, of reproducing knowledge and a nationhood within their groups. Uh, all these things were attacked by, uh, by the British and the French over the course of settler colonialism. So what genocide recognition for me does is it says that it's not just about individuals being targeted by a state um, or some, you know, sad history uh, or sad accident of history, but rather uh, there was intention behind it. And it wasn't just intention due to racism or cultural intolerance or something like that. There was there was an intention to destroy governments, to destroy civilizations of people uh, who had been on this continent for you know, tens of thousands of years. So that, for me, that's partly what genocide recognition means. It also means then that you have to think about um, the government enabling forms of Indigenous self-determination to occur, to recognize that it set out purposefully to destroy Indigenous governments and civilizations, and now they have to, to, uh, to get out of the way and, and, uh, and help if they're asked for help uh, to, to get these governments and, uh, and, and ways of, of doing things back on track.
0: One one last question, if I could. You're in New Zealand right right now, and uh, they're having their own uh, truth and reconciliation commission, as I understand it. Could you maybe compare some of the similarities and some of the differences between the indigenous peoples in New Zealand and uh, their counterparts in Canada?
2: Yeah. um, Well, the indigenous uh, Maori population here is about 15 or 16 percent of the population. so they have managed to maintain a higher percentage of the population relative to to the European settlers. Um, they were colonized later by the british than than what happened in Canada. Um, diseases were less rampant, so uh, in many ways, uh, New Zealand has been able to i suppose weather settler colonialism a little bit better um, just in terms of pure numbers and uh, uh, like the foreign minister is is, uh, is indigenous here. Um, there's, uh, uh, there's a, a, almost like a permanent uh, truth and reconciliation process called the Waitangi Tribunal, where they investigate, bre- they've only got one treaty, so they investigate breaches of the treaty, different Iwi or, or, or tribes, uh, First Nations can, uh, can document uh, crown abuses against them and get different kinds of redress and settlement. So we don't have any kind of permanent thing like that. People like John Burrows, uh, uh, Shin Imai and other uh, legal scholars have written on, uh, on how innovative that is in New Zealand. Um, and you never had specific legislation making Indigenous kids here go to residential schools. But what you do have are um, are more informal uh, laws which are applied in dis- uh, dis- applied discriminately or, or in a racial way uh, towards Indigenous kids. And so they get targeted uh, with, uh, with removal from their families. And they're the ones that get more targeted for um different kinds of petty offenses like loitering or jaywalking you know they're the ones that are going to get rounded up uh, historically certainly and and to some extent in the present uh, and targeted by the police and that sort of thing so uh, um, there is systemic racism here just as there is in Canada um, but there are some differences in legislation Um, and because uh, Maori are numerically larger and are an important part of the voting population as well um, they are able to exert a greater de- degree of leverage over the political system. Um, and so Tileo Maori, which is the, the Maori language, is one of the official languages of New Zealand since I think it's 1985 or 87, which, you know, is, is pretty innovative. We don't have any kind of anything like that in Canada.
0: Okay. We'll have to leave it there. David McDonald, thank you so much.
2: You're very welcome. Um, nice talking with you and uh, good luck with uh with the the show.
0: You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. The saga of the residential schools is the source of a vast amount of death, got a lot of attention nearly three decades ago. Kevin Annett was an Anglican priest who preached in... Port Alberni in British Columbia he was essentially fired from his position apparently due to raising too many of the wrong questions he has since put out information about the schools in a movie and a book Murder by Decree the Global Research News Hour got hold of him and asked about his reaction to the recent discovery of the mass grave on the former Kamloops residential school site now in the 1990s when you heard individuals complain about their treatment by residential schools and, and you felt compelled to, to tell first the church and then the world, your church, uh, removed you and, and they went beyond that to make you look bad, you know, they, they really you know, threw you under the bus as it were, all, all to keep the truth of genocide hidden. Um, you, you just to talk briefly about, uh, you know, some of the things that you went through as a, as a result of all of that.
3: Well, it started innocently enough for me in Port Alberni, uh, St. Andrews United Church, where I was hired as a, the minister in 1992. I began to immediately hear stories in native homes about the local residential school. The very first home I visited, the man said his best friend was killed and buried in the hill behind the school. And I was asking him why there were no natives in the churches. And he said, well, they don't want us because they know what they did. And, and, you know, they feel guilty about it. Um, but that went on and on. And actually what got me fired was I found out that, you know, a part of the whole genocide story is about the theft of land. And the United Church, their early missionaries had been grabbing native land and then selling it off to various corporate backers of the United Church. I found out about one of these deals wrote a letter about it, and I was out on my can quicker than you can blink. Uh, they then went to my wife and offered to pay for her divorce. I mean, it, all, it began to form into a classic smear uh, campaign. What you do to a whistleblower? You attack the family, you attack the livelihood and the reputation. And they expected me to buckle, but fortunately, I didn't. I began to work in the downtown east side of Vancouver. Over many years, we built a campaign to bring out the truth about uh, the residential school massacre and we include, that included occupying churches in Vancouver and Toronto uh, to force the issue out. We eventually did that. And, uh, but after the official apology in 2008, my name and this whole campaign was blacked out of the media. So a lot of people today don't know about it. But if you just look at the history of murderbydecree.com, you'll see how this truth was not only evident many years ago, but we proved it all. We even went to Europe and set up a tribunal that convicted the Crown, the churches, the Vatican, and Canada for these crimes in in 2013. So the fact that the the media now is portraying this as, well, some new discovery is absurd. I can show you like on, on, on the front page of the Ottawa Citizen in 1907, they're describing an average death rate of up to 69%. In these places, I mean, that's a level higher than the death camps in Europe under the Nazis, and yet it's still not being called, you know, what it is, which was deliberate massacre of, of children under the guise of, you know, religion and education.
0: Now you're seeing it, it; it can't be kept a secret any longer, right? I mean, do you feel justification in any sense that now here's a mass grave with 215 bodies that have been found?
3: Right. Well, we actually found many other graves before now. We were invited to the Mohawk School, the oldest residential school in Canada, in Brentford, Ontario. The Grand River Mohawks invited me in in 2011. We conducted a a professional dig. We found remains of bones right away at the site where eyewitnesses buried them. And um, we sent them off to the Smithsonian Institute. It was proven to be that of a young girl about, you know, very young, like five, six years old. The Canadian media completely blacked out the story. Nothing at all. The only paper reporting it was the Mohawk News. So I mean, like you know, it shows you the the when the criminals are still in power, naturally there's going to be this continual cover up. The reason it happened now in Kamloops was, um, you know, that some of the members of the Kamloops Band Council actually leaked the dig to the local Kamloops media on May 27th. Otherwise, it wouldn't have come out. It was a typical kind of RCMP, um, you know, government native chiefs covering up their own crime. They're, they're in there destroying a crime scene, which is against the law, you know, for for perpetrators who did the crime to go in and then tamper with the, the scene is, is really illegal. And yet there they go again doing it. So, yes, I feel vindicated. But, you know, you you face this continual uh, problem of when the, the the churches and governments have indemnified themselves, which is what they've done. Through their their so-called Truth and Reconciliation Commission. You're not allowed to be sued or, or be held accountable for these crimes anymore. So naturally, it's safe for them to talk about it. But we need international intervention. We need Canada to be tried for genocide, and it's obligated to
0: under the UN Convention on Genocide once they admit to it. Mm. You, you just, well, for the the, high, the Catholic High Leader, the Pope, uh, has not issued an apology for this historic act of the, the residential schools. Uh, I mean, given the the re- religious background that you you know, used to share uh, can you issue any insights into this reluctance to, for for the pope uh, to or, or any of the uh, you know, lower levels to apologize
3: you know the old saying is uh, the being the catholic church means never having to say you're sorry you know they've been doing this for many centuries. Crumogen, I said over half these these so-called schools were run by the Catholic Church. But you know what a serial killer says is really not the issue. The man behind, uh, legally belongs behind bars, and don't forget that um, an apology is a legal tool to avoid prosecution. Apology in the English language doesn't mean I'm sorry; it means to defend an action. If you look up the term apologetic in the dictionary, there's no reference to feeling regret. It's to defend an action and that's when when if you notice when an apology is issued justin trudeau and nobody ever says i'm sorry they just keep using the word apology and and similarly you know they they said to survivors yeah you can get a bit of money provided you sign off any legal action and say we never did anything wrong so really um the whole talk about apology is irrelevant the real issue is these are proven criminal institutions under international law. Their, their head officers belong before war crimes trial. That's just the law, you know, especially for an institution like the Catholic Church that launders money, deals in arms and human beings. I mean, these are proven crimes over the centuries. And yet, you know, they, they get off because all their money buys all the politicians and media attention they want. Right. So it, it, it's dealing with that systemic problem of, of what do you do when the institutions are running the show? Right. That did the crime.
0: Yeah. You rejected the, the truth and reconciliation process outright, as I recall. And and, and one of the reasons I remember is that, uh, well, you, you just said it, that none of the evildoers would be held accountable under this process. But uh, there were voices who still, in spite of, uh, there were voices coming forward that uh, came with uh, their own residential school stories. And, and while the TRC may not deal with that at least, you know, according to the state, the, sta- the sa- stage set, um, you know, virtually everybody is now it's, it's getting attention. And now virtually everybody, it seems to me, is believing that mass graves are everywhere. OK, so could you maybe reflect on these beneficial aspects, if you would?
3: OK. Well, first of all, it's not that people didn't know. The the Ottawa Citizen in 1907 reports a huge death rate. That's one of the major newspapers in Canada. So it's not like people didn't know, right? Um, The very fact that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was set up by the government and churches disqualifies it immediately. Because, you know, the serial killer can't appoint their own jury. I mean, it's that simple. They should have stayed right out of the process and asked international Parties to come in and monitor it and do the investigation. Also, when you look at the the TRC mandate in section two, it said they were not the TRC commissioners who were appointed by the churches. You know, they weren't allowed to take down as evidence any reference to a death, to a dead child, or a capital crime by anybody. So, you know, there you go, whitewash immediately. It's right in the mandate. Nevertheless, like you said, I mean people saw it as a door opening because at least on the ground survivors said, okay, we've got a bit of legitimacy now to talk about these things, right? Same thing. Now people are talking 10 years ago. No one dare mention a dead child in a residential school, but don't forget that truth came out because of our grassroots campaign and the the courage of many native people to very courageously come forward, even though they know it might cost them their life to talk about these things. Um, That said, the, the, the opposition to these government-run investigations are coming right from the Native people themselves, not from the chiefs who are on the government payroll, but from their traditional elders, the clan mothers, Natives living off reserve, uh, because if you live on reserve, you're totally controlled. You can, you can be forced uh, into hospitals, mandatory vaccinations of the law. For natives on reserve have been since 1874. I mean, it's a dangerous environment to be in. So we need to create these safe forums where the real stories can, you know, can come out.
0: Hmm. Uh, yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to say about media coverage and 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 with everything we've seen over the last two weeks? Uh, are there concerns, other concerns that that nobody is addressing?
3: Very much. I'd give you an example. One of our sources on uh, within the Tecumseh Band Council. Uh, who knows the people who leaked the story originally says that the the bank council have told native people not to talk to many reporters they've put a lid on any the release of any information um and it's a typical kind of controlled release of information that the government specializes in right the 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 canadian make, so-called mainstream media has turned their collective attention away from this whole issue countless times. Uh, i would give you the example of when we did the dig at the it was in We were invited in. The Grand River Mohawk elders conducted this dig and found bones, and it was totally ignored by all of the media. Um, so they're not allowed. I remember talking when I used to get media coverage before the apology. I was featured often in the Globe and Mail, National Post, all that. Uh, one of the guys, uh, Bill Curry, who did an article uh, about me that, uh, and, and the huge death rate in the school said, there's certain issues we're not allowed to cover. And I said, you mean your newspaper? He said, yeah, things that might implicate the government of the church top officers. We just can't go there. And um, that was kind of a blanket kind of admission that these things are, are filtered so that none of the evidence ever implicates anybody. It's like a huge crime without criminals, right? Um, so it, you heard the same thing going on a hundred years ago when the first, you know, all these terrible things that happened, you know, children, Peter Bryce, who was the head doctor for Indian affairs, did his famous study in 1907, where he said that children are being taken, the healthy and put in with the sick, and then left to die untreated. That was just germ warfare from tuberculosis and smallpox. Nothing was ever done. As a matter of fact, after that came out, the government abolishes medical inspection. Makes it impossible for Indians to hire lawyers and brings in sterilization laws where if you're an Aboriginal, you can be sterilized at the whim of the principal. All the genocidal acts, right? That's after people know about the crime. So it's it's, you know, like if you're in Chicago during Al Capone's time trying to get investigate what the criminals are doing to people, right? Dumping their bodies in Lake Michigan. I mean, you know, it's it, it's that why we need an independent understanding and inquiring into all of this stuff, right?
0: So, could you, I mean, just to to close up, could you, uh, you know, explain a little bit more about what you mean about the an in, through an international channel to to clearly, you know, a tr- achieve this true reconciliation that you claim is not uh, achievable by any other means.
3: Well. I don't hear the word reconciliation ever used by Native people, and I think it's the wrong word to use, because it implies an equal playing field, that we just have to bury the hatch and come to an understanding. It's a structured genocide. There's two standards in Canada. If you're a Native, you can be killed. You don't have the same legal recourse. People are operating under a gun. Uh, there isn't any kind of possibility for that in the present system. We need to get, we've got to get out from crown jurisdiction. We need to invite in international agencies and even sponsored by other governments under the UN convention on genocide that Canada signed and it's obligated to once a country admits to or is proven to commit a genocide as true to admit to in the summer of 2019. Once that happens, the country must be quote, prosecuted and punished both by other nations and by their own citizens. You're not under international law. We're obligated not to pay taxes, not to support a government that's committed and is committing these kinds of crimes. So, you know, we're just being operating under international law and morality. We cannot cooperate in any of this stuff happening. We need to stand under a different jurisdiction and don't forget citizens can do that. Um, You know, citizen inquiries like we conducted in 2012, 2013, it helped bring down Pope Benedict, it, it helped force this issue to the light of day. And that was just citizens operating with their own investigation. But the verdicts from those investigations can be acted on by other courts. So theoretically, I think that's why Pope Benedict's still hiding out in the Vatican, he knows he can be arrested for, you know, signing these orders to cover up these crimes and, and child trafficking that is ongoing in, the, in a huge way in the Catholic Church. So all of that shows the course we have to take, but it means going up against your own government going up against this, this whole mass brainwashing going on about these mass graves. 215 children is the tip of an iceberg. There's, we documented 28 other sites, released that to the press in 2008. Uh, it's up online, murderbydecree.com. Uh, you know, it, so uh, the knowledge is there. The proof is all there. It's now a question of the will to turn the tables on, these, on the government and churches and put them on trial and stop their crimes.
0: We've been speaking with Kevin Annett. Uh, He's a former clergyman of the United Church of Canada. He made the movie Unrepentant and uh, authored the book Murder by Decree. And he also co-founded International Tribunal into Crimes of Church and State. Richard Saunders is the coordinator of the Coalition Opposed to the Arms Trade and has a history of involvement in anti-war activism that spans three decades. He's also a researcher and the publisher and editor of Press for Conversion magazine. In 2017, he released Issue 69, dealing with what he calls fictive Canada, indigenous slaves and the captivating narratives of a mythic nation. He goes on into how... We color our horrific crimes with pacifying narratives in order to embrace the unthinkable. I asked him for the background of this idea and began to inquire about examples of high-profile figures
4: embracing these narratives. Uh, I guess the person that jumps to mind uh, most uh, quickly to me is uh, a man who lived in your city, uh, J.S. Whitsworth. And uh, he was a co-founder of the CCF, which... In 1960, uh, uh, coalesced with the uh, Canadian Labor Congress to become the uh, New Democratic Party. He's an icon and a great, much loved figure to to people on the left in Canada. Many people on the left, and uh, his father was actually responsible for the all the missionary work in Western Canada, the Canadian Northwest. That whole huge region so he was involved he was like leading the missionary onslaught the uh crusade to uh christianize the savages they were called uh because basically what we talk about now as canadian values back then they talked about christian values and uh Jess Woodsworth was a really extreme racist, and he wrote a book, uh, which is famous to some people, about uh, strangers at strangers at our gates, strangers within our gates. I'm just looking at the book on my shelf there. Um, anyway, um, what they were trying to do, the, the uh, European settlers, was to Christianize and to Canadianize and civilize those three C's, and they. Also, were thinking of it as a as a way of educating uh, the uh, the people because they thought that they didn't have a proper religion. They were they were savages, etc. So they thought they were doing a great thing. Uh, the schools also they they couched them in terms of um, teaching them a trade, but basically what it was was slavery. So half in most of this residential, and that's what I focused on when I wrote *Fictive Canada*. Was the uh, slavery aspect of it? Uh, so about half of their time, the the inmates of the schools um, were forced uh, to do labor. They were forced to work in the schools and and on the f- and uh, they were off. The boys were often uh, sent out to work on farms, and the girls often did domestic work and were sent out to to work for. Uh, for people in their home.
0: Well, the, 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 there was the dream of of converting savage heathens, yeah, and, and take and taking over their land. Right, of course. So, what what could blind people to the horrors that 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 came out of that, like sexual abuse and genocides happening in the
4: residential schools? I remember reading about the the fall roundup when they used to go out and round up the kids to, to take them away, to kidnap them for the residential schools. Uh, and it, it just, it was so horrible. It sounded like something you might read about that the Nazis did or something, you know, like it was on that scale. Like there was, this, there was an account that I read about how the Indian agents would go with the uh, RCMP. They would go to the different houses where the people lived and uh, knock on the door, they would refuse to come out. They didn't want their kids taken away, but then they would basically break the door in, go in, grab the kid, and forcibly rip them out of the arms of their parents, and then take them to these cattle cars on trains. And there was a story about how these women, these mothers went, The, the guy was telling the story of how he saw this dust, coming in the distance and it was these women coming to the towards the train chasing the train to get their kids back and they were putting their fingers they caught up to the train and put were putting their hands through the bars to to their kids and the kids were you know like everybody's crying and like it's just horrific stealing these kids away and uh, how could they possibly think that this was a good positive thing and like you say this is of course part of the whole uh, part of the whole strategy really for stealing the land for, uh, colonization. And it was the whole Imperial adventure and, uh, Canada as this, uh, Imperial project. Um, but it, you can't carry out a project like that and get basically the entire population of, of white, europeans on board to do that unless they're they themselves are kind of captivated or enslaved by an ideology which makes them believe that this is something positive and I, I guess most people wouldn't actually see these horrific incidents where the rcmp and the indian agents would go and actually kidnap these children most it was far removed from most people they they probably imagined it in a different way they just thought that maybe the you know who knows what they thought but they they believed uh really people really seemed to believe that it was a a positive thing
0: maybe that may have something to do with the actual narratives that are at play because i mean i guess that narrative seen you know, christianization or whatever was very very strong with the this new arrival relatively new arrival of 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 uh, of people
4: well they they brought in like millions of people and just flooded the, the, the prairies in the West with people uh, and forced the uh, indigenous people onto reserves where they basically starved them to death. Uh, Johnny McDonald uh, in the House of Commons basically bragged about how they were keeping them near death starvation and conditions. Like he thought it was, uh, he was, was a, 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 a kind of outrageous Uh, white supremacist racist and if you look at his speeches in the house of commons i mean it's right there for anybody to see so i and for you know the last 150 years or whatever we've had these statues and there's so many things named after him and it's so great to see that these things are are being uh people are, are are more aware now but what people aren't aware of is that canada is still doing the same sort of thing i mean we're not forcing, kidnapping children, putting them on in residential schools anymore. Yeah.
0: But- oh, you, you wrote about uh, na- native captivity and slave labor in Canadian prisons today. You know, how, how does that... Yes, that's true. Yeah, how, how does that fictive Canada still, to some extent, control our views?
4: mm mm-hmm. uh, Well, yeah, people... The, the, I looked at uh, basically there were four different stages of slavery in Canadian history. I went back to looking at um, you know the early so-called explorers. I think it's wrong to call them explorers. They were just basically businessmen. You could kind of call them instead of venture capitalists, they were adventure capitalists. You know they they got a a, a, a contract from the king and the pope to come over and basically get whatever they could and just bring it back, and then they would get a percent. Of the, of the spoils and their job was to, you know, basically conquer. Uh, and then, the, the, so there are different stages of, and they would kidnap people and, and use them as, uh, they would, it was a different form of slavery. But now the most, the current form of slavery that we have, we've been through the residentials. We, we had chattel slavery where you buy and sell people in the market. And then we had the residential schools uh, which were enslaving children and the, that happened right, began happening right when, the, when, when our Imperial masters in London in the 1830s decided that slavery was, uh, was gonna be banned. And so they, they banned slavery, but at the same time that was exactly when the residential schools picked up. And so they, they turned the, this, the uh, they, although they weren't allowed to buy and sell people in the market anymore, Uh, they were able to enslave children and youth in the schools. Now, you mentioned the the, uh, prisoners, and prisoners uh, in Canadian jails, of course, there's a disproportionate number of of prisoners that are Indigenous and uh, Black and people of colour. It's far more of them in prison than than there should be for the the number that they have in the population. Um, And... There's, it's not necessarily bad thing it's not a bad thing I don't think for them to be able to work and keep occupied and busy in this in the prisons I think that that's that's not the issue that that I, I think is important here the issue is that they're only paid a few cents an hour like they can't earn more than like two dollars a day or something it's insane um so it is a form of slavery and it it's it's uh it's going on. It's quite. It's normal. It's just part of the normal prison life. Canadians now uh, probably don't really know anything about that. It's going on right in our in the country now. But also, Canada is of course exporting weapons to the U.S. and to various different human rights-violating countries, and we're engaged in various different wars, and we have been for for you know hundred years or something. You know, like or what or many decades um, going off. Uh, and engaging in these imperialist wars of, uh, to overthrow governments that we don't like, that maybe aren't friendly enough to our businesses. And so there's all sorts of things that Canadian government is doing um, now that uh, are maybe, hopefully, in 100 years, people will look back and say, how could they, how could the Canadian public have possibly been brainwashed with uh, to believe that this was a good thing but it's it's the same sort of thing we have these uh these canadian values and we therefore are superior to so many other people in the world it's it's sort of expanded the whole idea of you know we're the uh, we are the uh the civilized uh, advanced uh developed people and then there are these other poor you know, poor, sad uh, people that live under regimes and uh, whatnot, that we need to go and rescue them and help them and uplift them. They used to talk about uplifting uh, the, the the poor people. So, yeah, we're still doing the same thing. It's just expanded to more of an international level. I, I want to thank you for,
0: for being available to address the uh, residential school crisis today. Okay, well, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'd be happy to talk anytime We've been speaking with Richard Sanders, uh, he's the coordinator of the Coalition Opposed to the Arms Trade and a researcher and publisher and editor of Press for Conversion magazine. Before we go, I just want to remind any listeners experiencing difficulty with today's pr- program that access emotional and crisis referral services are available now at the 24-hour National Crisis Line 1-866 Nine two five four four one nine. That's one eight six six nine two five four four one nine. Also, for listeners in Winnipeg, a National Indigenous Peoples Day event happens on Monday, June twenty-first on CKUW, and it's a powwow honoring the partnership between Indigenous peoples and settlers, starting at noon, and put on by the group Share the Gifts, Honor the Treaties. We hope you tune in. You've been listening to the Global Research NewsHour, a program funded by the Centre for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Gaking, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiowak and the Nakota. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at